from 11FS. I'm Ross Gallagher and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Innovate Finance's report says that the number of UK fintechs is set to double by 2030. Over half of women have never held an investment product, according to YouGov. And are you rocking the Midtown uniform? Stay tuned to find out all this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. I'm Ross Gallagher, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Sarah Kachansky. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Oh, so glad you're here. I get so much joy now just saying my 11FS colleague, Sarah Kachansky. And Sarah, like I think you know, I mean, I've been probably excited about this particular podcast in a way I haven't before, because not only is it our first time flying solo co-hosting, we've also got a full panel of debutantes. We have. I'm so glad we introduced the word debutant back into the podcasting language. All right. Well, let's put the spotlight on our debutantes, shall we? Uh, Joining us today, three fantastic guests. We've got James Hurley, Enterprise Editor from The Times. Thanks for joining us, James. Pleasure. And very happy to be a debutant as well. Excellent. Catherine Harris, Innovation Lead at Lloyd's. Catherine, welcome to the show. Hello, so excited to be here. And Samir Galati, Head of Policy and Regulation at Innovate Finance. How are you, Samir? Very well, thanks. Nice to be here. It's great to have all of you guys. So, I think we're all settled in. We've all got a drink. Should we, uh, should we kick off with the news? Absolutely. Let's do it. So I guess um, probably worth pointing out that all of the stories we talk about today are from our 11FS um, Fintech Insider community, fintechinsidernews.com. So check that out for all the latest industry news. And of course, sign up to get involved and discuss the stories with everybody on the show and in our community. So that is fintechinsidernews.com. So our first story today is looking at the report that came out this week from Innovate Finance about supporting UK fintech. So some really Um, interesting I think sort of headline figures on this one so you know one that sort of caught my eyes we're looking at a sort of three percent fintech workforce gap by 2030 leading to a 361 million pound direct loss to UK fintech sector over that period so um, I mean I can discuss this one I guess all I want but we have got Samir one of the co-authors of the report with us today. Samir, do you want to give us um, a little bit of the backstory and some of the the sort of key insights from your perspective? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks very much. So I think, you know, in in thinking about this report, one of the key things from us was immigration is such a highly emotive topic, not just from a political perspective, but from the impact that migrants have in a positive way to the UK economy as well. So what we tried to do at Innovate Finance was to say, well, what's the potential impact this could have on UK fintech if we move towards a more restrictive migration system. And so there's some really interesting insights that we developed alongside WPI Economics, who helped us put this report together. So the first thing was that, you know, what's the size of UK fintech today? Often you've got that 60,000 figure. And what we try to say is, well, we think that's changed. So today, we're saying that The UK fintech sector comprises 76,500 employees, and we're saying that that would increase to 105,000 by 2030 based on on the current growth projections. And that represents a 37% increase in just the employees in UK fintech. So we are doing really well, and I think that's the the first thing that we tried to say through the um, port itself. The second thing that we tried to say, and the second big thing, was how international is UK fintech and loads of stats around how internationalized UK tech is. But around fintech, I think the figures are a little bit more hazy. So from those that we surveyed, essentially what we found was that 42% of employees are from the overseas. 
28% of which are from the EEA and 14% from non-EEA. So a hugely internationalised sector. Um, can I ask a quick question? Yeah, that, that figure you quoted, the number of UK fintechs is set to double by 2030. Is yeah. that taking into account a potentially hard Brexit or is that the current trajectory we are on? Yeah, it's a great question. So that's the current trajectory we're on. That's the baseline that we work from. So based on growth today, we'll see a doubling of that. And obviously any more restrictions to immigration will impact upon that. And then the other thing that we'd want to say in terms of the key output from this report is if you move to a more restrictive migration system, so away from just the one that we've got at the moment towards something like non-EEA, what we're trying to say is is that there's a shortfall in the talent needed to see that growth come to fruition. And what we've done is we've modelled this and we've said that the potential gap, as Ross mentioned, was 3%, which equates to 3,200 workers or the equivalent of 67 fewer fintech businesses. So what we're trying to say is, is let's have as flexible, as forward thinking a migration policy as we can so that we can save the sector upwards of £361 million. And, and I think it's key to, it's important to mention here that what you actually did as well was you broke down which areas of businesses these migrants are working in. And from what I could tell, a large percentage of them are working in computer and software development. Now, that's not an easy skills gap to fill. That's not a kind of we can transition people. So if you're currently working in marketing, then maybe moving over to comms is you know an easy step. Trying to fill that size of gap with people who need to be trained up from the ground in software and, and technology development is inc- going to be incredibly difficult. It's not something we can solve by implementing a training program tomorrow. Absolutely. So what we've tried to say in the report is also balancing between the need that we need to attract international migrants, and we see that as a short to medium term fix. But in the longer term, it's all about developing local skills, whether it's, you know, changing the national curriculum to better reflect the digital skills gap that we have in the UK. And Sarah, as you mentioned, most of the migrants that we get and we we look towards Europe, the stats show from this report that 62% of companies say the most common role for EEA migrants was in computer and software development. And that reduces when you look at non-EEA. And when you look at the UK, it's about 30%. So absolutely plugging that skills gap is so important. And that's why we're calling on government to improve the investment in UK education as well. I mean, that's something, Catherine, that Lloyd's is working on in-house, is it not? Like doing some upskilling of, of your employees. I, was, I know this because I was reading your 2018 strategy this morning, but I know that you, you're been putting some money into actually training the employees you have and helping them, you know, develop those skills, which are going to become more and more in demand. Yeah, for sure. So I've recently actually moved into our people and capability lab, which is directly looking at kind of developing these new skills and capabilities within our workforce and really focusing on the talent. We have some fantastic people in the organisation who just haven't had that experience yet. So there's no reason why we can't really help thrive or help them thrive with the right skills and capabilities. And mindsets too is quite a big thing with the transformation going on, not only in fintech, but other industries too. And it's a really interesting space at the moment. But also with our strategy, uh, Lloyds Banking Group pledged about $3 billion into um, strategic investments. And a big part of that is around people and capability too. And that's over the next 10 years to really focus on building the bank of the future, which is really, really reassuring. 10 years is a long time. I think it speaks, Sarah, to your point as well as that we're not going to, I guess, plug this gap overnight. And obviously the nightmare scenario is a hard Brexit where suddenly we're sort of wrenched out of the EU and there's no sort of, I guess, fallback strategy. We've benefited for so long in this country from that sort of diversity of perspectives of skill sets that you get from growing up you know not just in a single place but coming from around the world and I think Samir it comes out quite strongly in the report that 
those you know the skills that come from overseas complement the skills sets that we've already got here in the uk rather than actually sort of replacing them right absolutely so the data that we try to look at essentially shows that the majority of skills that we're looking to import tend to be in those harder skills. So whether it's UX design, software design, computer skills and development, that's the bulk of where we're getting international talent in. And when you look at fintechs that recruit from the UK, it tends to be more in the managerial roles, in the sales roles. And that's not to denigrate the importance of those roles. But the other thing that we're seeing is that, especially within fintechs, those roles require specialism. It's not just a standard sales role. You need to understand the product you need to understand the semantics behind the product to be able to sell that better. So absolutely, one of the key findings is, you know, this isn't an and or or. It's largely looking at the fact that, you know, by having more international talent here, we're A, supplementing the UK talent pool, which is already pretty, pretty shallow, as is the global talent pool. But at the same time, we're actually building more momentum for fintechs to locate here as well. And I think it, it is something that we've seen. It's something that the government are aware of. We've seen the Chancellor Philip Hammond announce initiatives around sort of working with universities to sort of train them so that, you know, these sort of fintech friendly initiatives so that they have those skills. Also, I guess, working with um, people who've come from other industries to sort of reskill them, I guess, and again, make that sort of talent pool available. James, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, all the, the retraining initiatives and things somebody was talking about in terms of the curriculum are all well and good, but that's, you know, that's a decade, two decade type issue. And by, if you look at what FinTech has done in Britain over the last, it's really been like, what, probably five to seven years that we've seen this explosion in this area. So I think it's very easy to lose our edge. I mean, if you believe, I think it was Mark Tucker, the HSBC chairman at the recent FinTech conference, he was talking about China already overtaking us. So the, the skills challenges now, really, uh, I think that's that's the concern. And the other thing I'd say is probably like a lot of other industries, I expect FinTech will have to rely on more non-European migrants. And at the moment, that means competing with the NHS for skilled workers because of the tier two visa cap i would be amazed if that isn't lifted that sounds bonkers you've got fintechs competing with doctors i mean obviously that you feel like the doctors should win out in that scenario but that doesn't seem like a sensible strategy to me well exactly and that's that you know it's not a good message for any industry to be sending out saying we don't want the nhs to be able to hire doctors so it's i think that issue is going to come to the fore if we do see the expected downturn in european migration to the uk and yeah i mean the threat of losing out to to china is a bit of a bit of a scary one when it comes to bridging skills gaps and all that good stuff all to play for it sounds like cool so i guess you know speaking of fintech global talents from my migrants this next story comes from uh, monies that what i always like to call a sort of financial inclusion specialist the sort of fintech aimed at, at expats at migrant workers so What's really interesting is maybe they're the first financial services provider to really crack that sort of holy grail of finance, which is around customer loyalty, you know, what we always call primary accounts, although it depends, I guess, on how you define primary accounts. And by the way, that's not how big banks tend to define primary accounts, which is typically mandate your salary or at least ring fence some of your salary and attach a couple of direct debits. It's about a lot more than that. But um, this one is super interesting. So, I mean, obviously in the world of sort of digital banking, when anyone can open like a Starling or a Revolut account with the touch of a button, this idea of primary accounts is becoming a sort of crucial sign of loyalty. So um, Monies, I mean, this for me speaks to something around 
actually putting customers first, grounding your proposition in financial wellness, trying to help the customer, but they seem to have like really cracked that sort of loyalty point, right? Can I take a very mercenary view? Oh, an no. opposing view. So I agree that monies have done really well. And the, the key stats here are monies are 400,000 customers of which 70% are using it as their primary account. My second favorite thing about this is the next bit says, the Monzo now has over 500,000 users. Maybe a typo, I don't know. But well, maybe just it's just to distinguish it from all those other Monzos. All those other Monzos has over 500,000 users. So you, you get a kind of a sense of perspective. And as, as Ross said, like not everybody who uses a Monzo account is using it for their their primary account. Most of them aren't, in fact. So money is charges for almost everything for two reasons. One, because it has to make money. So why not? But two, it's got a captive audience, right? So they don't have any choice but to go anywhere else. So of course, they're going to pay because they need to get access to those services. So on the one hand, money is, is, is doing really well. It's attracting all these customers. It's, you know, making money where Monzo, I think, probably still isn't, although they're quite you know, quite about that. But, you know, they are, have got quite the captive audience. So whilst you say, you know, they're loyal, how many other choices do they have? And if they have no other choices, then what's the question about charging them all these fees that you and I don't have to pay because we've got a Monzo card? Because you have to pay to use this card overseas. You have to pay to withdraw cash overseas. I don't have to do that because I've got a Monzo card. So I agree with you that they have done very well in capturing this market and the people who are using it obviously like it. But I, I wonder whether actually we need to see more competition for that market to even that out a bit. Because right now, those people have financial services, but they're paying for it. And you're right. So maybe this is very much a very, very specific solution very much in the moment. I think what we're starting to see, particularly from the likes of Starling, Monzo, etc., these fintech players, what they're doing differently and also speaks to sort of financial inclusion compared to the incumbents is they're moving away from this idea of a walled garden, right? So if we're looking at, for example, you know, an incumbent bank, how they have typically tended to onboard new to brand customers is rely almost entirely on the credit reference agencies, right? They're doing two things. They're verifying ID. They're also verifying credit worthiness. If you fall below whatever their minimum credit worthiness threshold is, you're out. If you don't, you're in, right? What we're seeing with the fintechs that's quite nice is actually, yes, they verify your ID, but they're doing it in a sort of tech, techie way, which again, you know, doesn't necessarily rely on the credit reference agency, although the ID verification bit is what the credit reference agency does well. What they're not doing up front is necessarily checking your credit worthiness and they're taking a more progressive approach to onboarding. So I'm not asking for a credit facility at the point of onboarding. I need a current account. Why are you checking my credit when I don't? I haven't asked for a credit product, right? Do it at the point of need. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure other people have thoughts on this. I mean, the credit point is an interesting one because one of the reasons that Monzo, Monzo did used to do it that way. They didn't used mm. to do a credit check. And then the fourth any 4AML or whatever it's called, fourth anti-money laundering directive came in last June and all of a sudden they were like, and it was a combination of that and moving from a prepaid to a current account. And they went, oh, okay, now we have to ask a lot of our customers to go through a second process. And that was kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. But does anybody else have any quick view on this? I mean, I see this, I'm probably optimistic about it. And I'm, I think it's a positive development, because I think what you've got to bear in mind with services like monies, and I think there's a few other fintechs looking at this area, before they arrived, you know, you're right, what were the services that are available to, to their kind of customers? And the answer is very few. And that's why 
people like Wonga did well for a few years, right? There may well be fees on their accounts. So I don't know all the details of their charges, but I'm willing to guess that they're they're significant. Not 1400 exactly, yeah. APR or whatever that was. And that that is the right comparison. Yeah. That's the comparison that we have to make. And but to your point around you know picking up customers, I think that is that's very true. It's much harder for a Monzo to pick up customers because they're they're fishing in a in a more competitive pool. Basically, the question for all of these services though is how they're going to make money per customer. I don't know the details of right. Monzo. And this is a key thing for me yeah. is, all right, fine. So they've identified a captive segment and they're doing quite well in that space. The question for me is, what are they doing now on an ongoing basis to turn that customer into a profitable customer? So how are they managing that relationship? Is it just that they are willing to give them an account and they're happy enough to sit back and make the money on the fees? Why aren't they taking a more proactive approach using things like nudge theory, managing that relationship a lot more closely, telling them, teaching them how to behave in a financially responsible way and turning them actually into a profitable customer? The question mark for me with these services, I don't know what money strategy is, but a lot of I see a lot now of the fintech players talking about opening up APIs to third parties. And I think that introduces some quite interesting challenges for this sector, because then you're not completely owning your relationship with your customer. And I think the risk is you start replicating a lot of the areas where banks have ultimately gone wrong because banks don't make very much money famously on current accounts the way that they make money is from third-party services all the things that the fintechs are now attacking whereas so now we're in this situation where we've got the neo banks and a lot of them aren't making very much money per customer so they start adding third-party apis in and you just wonder if we're going around in a big circle so, i think Samir, that's the did risk you want to jump in yeah, there? Abso- yeah absolutely i think the interesting thing with manese and i used to call it manese but obviously that's totally wrong not if you're in italy yeah no idea what it's called but let's call it manese but the thing about them is they're not a bank so the other thing that i would say is they're more of an, an e-money institution as far as i'm aware and I, I could be wrong on that but essentially what that means is is that they're not shelling out for a banking license so therefore they don't have those huge overhead costs they're not having uh, constant compliance for example uh, but also they can't as a bank lend on deposits which is a big difference and also your money is not guaranteed by the uh, by the fscs either so the difference with what Monet's is doing is they're more of a light banking service so instantly what they're trying to do is attract a migrant pool which isn't just beholden to Europe or the UK but actually globally and I think that's what's really interesting about their proposition is that ultimately what they're trying to do is to create a service for the 247 migrants around the world who don't have access to these services. And in true fintech fashion what they've done is they've started with a customer problem and they've designed a solution that's absolutely fit for purpose. Catherine. Yeah, well, absolutely. The same, I have the same conversations with all of my friends who move over from New Zealand. I mean, they initially come over. It's all around setting up a bank account and how difficult it is. And it's like, why can't this just be simple? Especially because back in New Zealand and Australia, it's, it's much more efficient and faster and easier to do. Um, and it's like, why is it still such an issue in this area? So, yeah, some of them have started moving more towards the challenger banks because it's a lot easier but I think what's going to be interesting with that group in particular is when they can start getting out of London as well because a lot of them have the same customers who have accounts with most of them because they're interested in the space and curious so 
what will really kind of pique my interest, I guess, is when they start kind of getting out of this bubble and into more of the mass market in the countryside. It's when, and, and actually, monies might have an advantage here because if I say to, you know, if we say to our parents or our grandparents, oh, we should check out this Starling account, I would imagine the only reason they would do it would be for the free travel. Whereas if you're a migrant and migrant communities um, historically are very, very close, that they, they stay together and, you know, they do a lot of things via word of mouth, you know, they're much more likely to spread. And, you know, if, you, if you're in London, that's great. But say you've got family in, I don't know, Blackburn or somebody somewhere and then you get you know one or two people in Blackburn starts using it then word of mouth in that community spreads it so actually on that element they might move faster they might pick up customers more broadly and that virality is key isn't it that's what that's what like keeps the fintech juggernaut just like powering forward but I you know I think we've picked up on it already but you know maybe the more accurate comparison from a competitive standpoint for monies isn't comparing them to a Starling or a Monzo. Maybe it is to a Wonga or, or other sort of payday loans or expensive credit builder products. Yeah, I mean, it depends what people want to use it for, right? So Absolutely. All right, well, um, if anyone wants to find out more about monies, you can watch end-to-end user journeys from monies and many more like them in our competitor insights video platform, 11FS Pulse also known as the Netflix of fintech. To check it out or to get more info and request a demo, go to 11fspulse.com or email hello at 11fs.com. Sarah, I think you want to walk us through this next story, which was submitted to Finn by James McConaughey, who I know is a big fan of the show, but is also very big on sort of financial literacy and inclusion, etc. And this one's around women and, and investment. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. It, basically, the story is back off the back of a YouGov study, which said that over half of women have never held an investment product. It's the same old story. 52% of women have never held an investment product compared to 37 of men. Mostly, apparently, we um, are lacking in confidence and lacking in knowledge. I'm really bored of reading this story. Those two things may be true. And I think I think a lot of women are being honest when they say that. But, you know, one of the things, questions I always have with this kind of study is, does this include pensions? Does anybody out there, you know, how many people out there don't know that their pension contributions are invested? Now, it's passive. It's on your behalf. But how many people don't know that? That's the first question you've got to ask. The second question is, it's not working, guys. If I read one of these surveys every six months, whatever it is you're doing not working. There are some really interesting um, investment products directed specifically at women. You've got, you know, the robo-advisors, the likes of Elvest. But again, they are mostly targeting the the high earners, women who kind of already know what they might want to do um, and have enough money to kind of play a bit, you know, put a thousand pounds in and see what happens. So what I really would love to see if anybody listening is prepared to do this is to go into that, go down that pension route, educate people about what pensions are, how they work, tell them that's an investment. You know, you've been putting money into it since you were whatever, 18 or since, you know, the government made you. (laughs) So do you actually know what's happening with that money? And if you're happy to contribute to a pension, then do you know you're investing? And maybe that's another route into this. I don't know, Catherine, you're another woman around the table. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I I just had a lot of questions as well, kind of reading this article in particular. And yeah, it's that thought of, okay, investments are kind of being labelled in this particular set, but what else are we forgetting here? What else could it cover? Are women investing their money in other things that don't fit into this realm for the likes of like, mortgages and having a house that's another kind of investment and more lifestyle factors too or saving for their children's future saving for university fees well that's an investment technically isn't it i mean it's not going to give you that many returns financially but it's about broadening the perspective i think yeah and and that's perhaps that's where i would actually like to see a bit more done on this is yeah where where is woman's money going because it's going to go somewhere and what are they doing with it may not fit into these particular terms for me 
I'm genuinely surprised that 45% of men say they would feel confident investing and 28% of women, like, we don't learn anything about money in this country. Like, how does anyone feel confident? But how much of this is bias and how much of this is men being asked a question, would you feel confident? Yeah, yeah, I'm confident or to do it. And how much of this is the split between men working in finance and women working in finance? Yes, that's another question I had is like, okay, well, how are these particular investments being communicated and are they geared and tailored more towards males? Absolutely. Yeah, I suspect there's a couple of things going on here. One is probably that age-old thing we have of men being overconfident. You know, there's all those surveys about when men get asked directions and don't know the way they'll pretend (laughs) that they do and ask women and they'll be honest about whether they know the directions or not. The other thing I think that's I suspect is going on here is the investment industry has been pretty terrible at targeting anyone who isn't super wealthy and unfortunately as we all know with the gender pay gap a lot of too many high earners are happen to be men and I think that's that probably is a lot of the picture here and the investment industry needs to get better at targeting all middle earners and to your point I totally agree with that around financial education actually it's that issue is not gender I mean I might have missed the class in school around like here's how to save for a house but I mean, I don't really think I did. I think, um, you know, James, to pick up very much on your point about not targeting people who are sort of high earners, I think some of the fintechs have done a decent job. I'm thinking sort of Robinhood, Simple, et cetera, at sort of democratizing investments on the whole. What I think they've missed a trick on is, again, that sort of customer focus. So what I, what I always find interesting is, inevitably in a chat interface they'll ask you some some sort of canned questions and you'll give responses they'll assign you a risk profile which you can either change or can't depending on the provider what's interesting is it's the ed piece in the middle education piece they don't tell me so they say and it feels like provider thing like they need to assign me a risk profile rather than tell me what my risk profile is tell me what it means tell me how it's going to evolve as i as i get older so i'll be, I'll be quick because i know samir wants to jump in but just with the wealth simple point really interestingly i have a wealth simple portfolio and when the stock market did that like thunk a few months ago the first thing that came up when i opened my app was this is why your portfolio has gone down do it was a notification do not panic stock markets go up and down do not withdraw your money now you can take that on not you can take that as either advice or them panicking but actually that was a start for me that was kind of an education that was okay this is how stock markets work this is what you need to understand but then it becomes about managing that relationship literally on a customer level right so customer by customer over time and this is something that we saw when we did our takeover in warsaw with hargreaves lansdowne was it becomes about all right what message do i push to each type of customer but also and they use behavioral analysis and all that sort of stuff when do I push it? When are they like most likely to be receptive? And it's about managing that way. But I think also the upfront ed piece. And I know, so James McConaughey, who submitted this story is um, COO of PEER, which stands for your personal investment assistant. They want to sit in the sort of marketplace space for investments. And I know the ed piece is a, is a big thing for them. So I know that's why James submitted this story. Samir, Sorry, yeah, so my, please we just do jump really in. rough shot over you, Samir. Please jump in. No, it's fascinating. And I think it's a really difficult question because it, it comes down to not just gender or diversity, but social norms, changing social attitudes. So one of the interesting sort of stats that I found was that this isn't, you know, broadly replicated across ISIS. So if you look, for example, women tend to outnumber men in opening cash ISIS. So it's not just this issue around, you know, access to financial services, it's specific to investment. If you look at ISIS, for example, uh, around the 45 to 54 age category, women outnumber men in cash ISIS by about 60 to 40 in terms of the ratio. So it's not about savings, it's something specific to investment. And I think the other thing this comes to is whether it's women 
or men or, or whomever. But in particular, you find some subcategories of people, some demographics tend to be more risk savvy. So their risk appetite is different to others. And I think that's really interesting, understanding what the drivers behind risk appetites are, why people would invest, at what age they might invest, at what wealth bracket they might invest. For me, that's really interesting. And, and obviously, with the investment gap, you know, women live longer than men. If you look at sort of the 30, I think the 36 super centurions in the world, so those over the age of 110, all but one are women. This is a big problem because ultimately later in life, you know, women are going to have to face this problem more so than I think men are in some ways. That was awesome, Catherine. You were like nodding furiously throughout. You want to come in on it? Yeah, yeah. Well, just through the FinTech mentoring program, I've had the privilege of meeting some awesome startups who are actually looking at some cool things in this space. And one of them I just wanted to give a shout out to was NeuroProfiler, um, who are actually using gamification and psychometrics to look at people's risk appetite. Um, so definitely worth checking out there. And for me, that's the key to the sort of education piece as well. It's about making it immersive. It's about gamifying it. It's about making it fun. Like, I don't even know I'm learning, but you're telling me about like, this is how things tend to react to market pressures, that sort of stuff. And suddenly I'm kind of getting it, right? Whereas now, I mean, what's awesome about the likes of Simple is something like 45% of their customer base are first-time investors. So they're doing something right to connect with those people that weren't investing before. I just think there's a little bit more to be done in, just in that sort of education piece i think time for a quick break we will be back very shortly we wanted to let you know that if you love this show how about seeing it live we're going to be at money 2020 europe in amsterdam this june and we're bringing fintech insider live with us we'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception and you can be there sign up for tickets now go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811fs that's 1811fs to get 200 euros off the ticket price welcome back to the show as a reminder fintech insider is brought to you by 11fs we build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11fs.com, connect on Twitter at 11fs team, or drop us an email at hello at 11fs.com. Now on with the show. And in the second half, we're going to go around the world with some of the biggest global stories, starting with Australia's data falls off the back of a truck. What happened here, Sarah? Right. So this, I'm going to start with one story and then I'm going to segue and I'm going to come back. I've got it all planned. So basically, this story is from BuzzFeed News. Who knew they were still a thing? Australia's largest bank lost the personal financial histories of 12 million customers. So Commonwealth Bank lost, lost all these histories and didn't tell anybody about it, basically. Or they didn't tell any of their customers about it. They did tell the OAIC, which is the privacy regulator, if you like, in Australia. Apparently, they lost the banking statements for customers from 2004 to 2014, so over 10 years, after a subcontractor lost several tape drives containing the financial information in 2016. Now, they didn't have to disclose this because at the time there were no rules in Australia saying you have to disclose a privacy breach. As of March this year, there are those rules. So if it had happened since March, they would have had to tell people. But... The second piece here is that the Australian government or parliament have been doing a review into the Australian banking system this week, or over the, sorry, they released it this week. They've been doing it over the past few months. Now, anybody who knows Australia knows there are four banks and four banks only. And it's called the four pillar system. And those banks are not allowed to merge or acquire or, or literally do anything. So it's a closed system. And my God, have they been having fun with it. So this review came out and said that Australian banks 
across the board have charged dead customers for up to 10 years in some cases, charged fees for services they never actually provided, staff regularly falsely witnessed client forms, so, you know, providing that second signature, and um, breaching money laundering rules left, right and centre. You know, Commonwealth Bank has already agreed to pay millions of dollars back. So when that came out, the OAIC went, oh, maybe we should ask them what happened with all that data back in 2016. That's when it became public, basically. So it was off the back of that report. The two things together, it's one hell of a, I'm going to say shitstorm, and you can edit that out later if you like. But the point is, I, I said this earlier this week, it makes Wells Fargo look good. The best thing about this is that when they went back and asked Commonwealth Bank what might have happened, apparently, and this is, this is coming from KPMG, the drives weren't secured properly and fell off the back of a truck in transit that was carrying the data for destruction. Forensic investigators, gets better, forensic investigators hired to assess the breach, retraced the route of the truck to determine whether they could locate the drives, but weren't able to find any trace of them. And this is like two years later, right? Yeah, I mean, so big story, Australian banks have been absolutely screwing their customers for years. (laughs) This is one potential highlight of this. Can I please just clarify, I grew up in New Zealand and not (laughs) Australia. (laughs) It's right, you work for a British bank, you know, we may be bad. There's a level, there's a whole, this is a whole other level. Everyone around me is just shaking their heads. Because it's it's a disbelief. I mean, like, what bothered me so much when I read the article, particularly about the sort of abuses that I guess, you know, came from what is essentially collusion, it feels like the regulator was complicit. Absolutely. The Australian bank's lobbying power is is second to none, actually. And, you know, even when we're saying about falsely witnessing contracts, it just felt like a shoulder shrug. It was like, yeah, it's kind of just what we did. Samir, what what do you think? Yeah, so I come from an Indian family. And so when my dad said, oh, would you like an iPod? it normally was, oh, it fell off the back of a truck. Now, the difference is, is this is sort of financial information of sort of, you know, millions of customers. I find it comical. Like, I imagine in some years there'll be, or not maybe months even, like a Netflix documentary on, guess what, you know, to secure data, what you need to do is sort of at least tape it to the back at of a truck. At least the back of the van. Who, who uses tape? No, but seriously, also... We don't even know that that is what happened. Yeah, true, yeah. yeah. Right, they're surmising. And then, Sarah, to pick up on what you said about, like, this wasn't even an issue from a regulatory standpoint until March this year. How is that a thing? James, what did you... I'll take a slightly contrary position here in that the comical aspect of it surprises me and is kind of slightly pleasing in the sense of this image of, you know, perhaps this tapes have ended up in the hands of some kind of Australian Dell boy or something and that's why they've, they've never been found. But, and kangaroos. Yeah, yeah that's them right. Yeah, exactly. But the th- I think Palmy thinks also well done to Australia for having a Royal Commission on this issue because the other areas, you know, the the false witnessing of papers, the charging dead customers, yeah, none of these things would surprise me if our own banks were doing this stuff. And indeed, if you do look through the, the list of the litany of misdeeds of, of our own banking institutions, you'll find lots of, of similar things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing with Australia is that the commission was forced, the, ha- the hand of the, the prime minister was forced by the um, opposing, the opposite, basically the opposition party in Australia, who I think had sniffed some of this out yeah. and, and used it. I mean, this is pure speculation, but I lived in Australia for quite a while. So I'm using like what I know of Australian politics here and kind of forced his hands. But you're right, it has all come to light. 
Samir, did you want yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, just, just one thing, which is on a more serious note. You know, often when you think about these things, it's, it's not the crime itself, it's the cover-up. And I think that's the issue. They've got a vendor here who they asked to destroy these tapes, these magnetic tapes. They couldn't find the destruction certificate, so then they launched this inquiry and went, well, where, where have they gone? Off the back of a truck, you know, KPMG went, uh, or potentially. The issue then was, well, they knew about this. Well, why didn't they tell customers they knew about this in 2016. I mean, why not tell customers that this is what's happened to your data? Be open, be transparent. We've seen so many data breaches, you know, a number of firms, you know, Cambridge Analytica is just one of them, for example. But, you know, you see credit reference agencies, etc. The issue here, if I was a customer, was I can kind of understand if you're a vendor and, you know, you can't find this destruction certificate. Just tell me. I'd have more trust in my bank if you told me. So I think that speaks to the Australian banking system as well. I think it's the idea that without this competition, so a lot of things we've learned, you know, know and love by people like Monzo is their transparency. And because they're being transparent, the big banks also feel they should be transparent in order to keep up. Because Australia is, you know, this is absolutely true, about 10, 15 years behind the UK when it comes to banking. I don't, I think they just were like, we're the bankers. Like We can do what we want. I mean, it should be pointed out that some of the, the fastest growing banks in Australia are like ING. You've got an arm out there and that's doing very well. And there's a couple of near banks which are coming up through the ranks as well. And I think that they will force the hand. I think uh, James is absolutely right. The commission has started this. Um, and I think the Australian government also has an open API program, which is rolling out. And these ca- challenges will force them to pick up the pace. But we shouldn't really be having these conversations in 2018. But we've seen this, you know, and it's really sort of calamitous. Like, you know, there's been so much mishandling of, you know, consumers' private data across the board. It's not just banks. We've seen it from Uber. We've seen it from Facebook. And all I can say at this point, and people will probably throw things at their iPhone while they're listening to this, but long live GDPR. Moving swiftly on. (laughs) I am going to move this on. So from one calamity to another... Canada's stock market has reopened after a rare shutdown. So the stock exchange operated by TMX was halted by an outage last Friday after a failure with data storage equipment. Canada's stock exchange is the sixth largest in the world and the outage was only for a few hours. Obviously still quite significant. I think one of the key things was that it happened on a Friday, which is fairly low volume day anyway. And also it gave them the weekend to sort it out. Probably another saving grace is that traders could trade on the U.S. stock exchange, so that helps as well. But, I mean, still not great, is it? I mean, it throws to light a couple of things. One is, that, again, the big problem here was not that the stock exchange went down. It was that it took them two hours, and they didn't. And they said there were problems at, like, 1.37. By 2.30, they were like, okay, we're going to stop trading. But it was at 3.54 p.m., and our stock market's closed at 4 p.m., that they announced the final prices that they would close on. So there was two hours when people who were, were trading in Canada didn't know whether their trades were going to go through effectively or what price they were going to go through at. So when this happened in New York a few years ago, they instantly said what the problem was, and everybody switched to another other exchanges to trade on. Canada has fewer exchanges, so there's less choice. But it was, again, it was this lack of communication. You know, just tell people what's going on, and they'll get on with it. You know, I I think tech problems will happen. The more honest and open you can be about it, the better it's going to be, just generally speaking, across all of financial technology. But technology in general as well, I'm like, it's not a great situation, but it's kind of good in a way that something like this has happened because people need to be aware of how easily the system can actually fail and go down. We are so connected 
we're at a massive risk and it can just drop like that and everyone will be quite heavily impacted if it was something in another industry perhaps. One of the crazy things I love about living in London is I just happened to have drinks one evening with a man who's writing his PhD on survival tactics. This comes yes, up, of right? Course, of this course. comes <laughs> up. I mean, this is something that we talked about, Sarah, on our After Dark show here in London, not in San Francisco, for those fanatics who listen to both. Was this, you know, was it Sweden when we were saying that, you know, they really don't want to go fully cashless? And actually the government was sort of like ambling to take like cash into like public ownership because of these sort of doomsday scenarios, right? Yeah, I mean, it is a case of, as you know, as you said, this is this is kind of another calamitous story. And it is it is kind of just relatively small. And the volume is, is, you know, not that big a deal in the global stock markets. But yeah, I think we've all agreed that it's points to a bigger problem perhaps which is the overall reliance on technology sorry Samir did you want to finish up on that yeah yeah the only thing I'd probably add to that is it's you know it's for traders so seconds matter let alone hours so I mean if it's in any other sort of form of life or if you're doing something else you know it might not be as big a deal but with traders this is you know this is a huge huge impact the other thing I'd say is you know typically what you what you don't find in in Canada is they don't necessarily have a data feed that consolidates quotes in real time across equity markets that's an issue like if you had the data and the transparency to know that this is happening that's an issue but just being left in the dark and then not even having competition to go to another um, sort of platform to be able to execute your trade well that just that makes the issue a lot worse yeah and they do have ubiquity that TMX exchange makes up something like 61% of trading in in Canada so that's pretty huge. Sarah, tell us about this one, Green Skies IPO. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. So for those who follow the tech market and indeed the fintech market, IPOs have been a little a little thin on the ground of late. Green Sky is a fintech. They're effectively a B2B to C marketplace lender. So banks lend money to them. They then give the money to people like plumbers and the plumber will then allow you to pay for refitting your bathroom in installments. So it's, it's a very clever model. But it's quite niche, right? And this is why people might not have heard of Green Sky despite the fact they're the third biggest fintech firm in the US behind Stripe and SoFi. Yeah, I mean, the key points here are, yeah, they're big and, you know, yeah, they have an interesting product, but they make money. So they their revenue between 2016 to 2017 grew from $264 million to $326 million. And that's not huge growth. That's 24% growth. And we've seen the likes of, for example, Revolut shoot past that. But Green Skies actual profit that they put in their pockets went from 125 million pounds in 2016 to 139 million dollars in 2017 um so this is something that i i go on about all the time is when these startups are looking to exit it's all very well having a big valuation and in fact you can have quite a lot of revenue but if you can't prove that you can make money or you can make your business model work you're not going to be able to exit. So whilst I think everybody will look at this and go, okay, maybe the market's picking up, I think this is quite a specific example of actually a company that has been around a long time, since 2006, built itself up, scaled slowly, spotted, you know, as we said earlier, a problem and fixed it, and done so very successfully. And built up a valuation in the meantime of four and a half billion. I mean, that's insane, right? Yeah, according to Forbes. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see when that IPO happens. And you're right. I mean, of course, that, that exit strategy is all important, but I mean... Four and a half billion. Yep. 
Yeah, well, it makes Revolut look quite small. <laughs> Sorry, James. I think it's tempting to see this, as you say, as a you know test of the IPO market for tech firms, which so many technology firms have been avoiding it for the risk of the valuations coming in disappointingly and showing that all those rounds were wildly all those optimistic. were, in fact, fictional. Exactly. but all 26 I, of them. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think your analysis is spot on, though, in that these guys have got a completely different business model to most other fintechs, and most importantly, they make money. Indeed, the founder is a bit of an outlier as well. I was reading about him earlier, and he's a, he's a very private guy, doesn't like going to conferences, doesn't like appearing in the press. It doesn't sound like many of our favourite fintech stars, does it? <laughs> it's me. It's already yeah, yeah. yeah. J- just the other thing to add on top of that, the issue around the, the founder is really interesting. So I was doing a bit of reading as well. And again, it's that tale of diverse talent. So you've got the likes of, you know, David Zalik. He's a majority stakeholder in this. So he's worth about two and a half billion, which is probably more than Trump. So who's he? Just give us a look. So David essentially is the the founder, the CEO of the company. He essentially, his father was raised in Argentina and his mother moved from Russia to China to Australia. He then came to the US with his family. Uh, He dropped out of college. He sold his, I think, his first business around his early 20s for a few million, which makes me feel awful about myself. I hate people like that. (laughs) It's really annoying. And a few years later, he's got a company with 800 employees valued at $4.5 billion. That's the value of talent around the world. It's a really interesting story. And as, you know, as has been mentioned, he's not your typical founder. And I think you know, it shows just the value of talent and the fact that we need to continue to nurture that. And I think his company is great as well because they don't actually take any of the risk of the defaults either. You know, They take a commission from banks on the one hand, but then from the contractors on the other hand. And so actually it's a really sustainable business model. Yeah, they're a proper marketplace lender. And also the story there for me is perseverance. It might take you 12 years to get there, not the end of the world if it does. I like that, right? So a lot of love for Green Sky in the Room and that sort of idea of like quiet scaling, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to move us on. So this is to do with Safaricom's social network. I think this is my favorite story this week. So Safaricom is turning M-Pesa mobile money service into a social network. So, I mean, you know, look, Safaricom is Kenya's kind of dominant telecoms operator. M-Pesa is um, this mobile money app, has brought something like 67% of Kenyan adults into like the formal financial system. It's transformed financial services in the country. And what they're doing is they're sort of extending it or building it out to become this sort of social network, which I really like. So it's about like, it's not about now financial services and payments in particular being sort of a sort of separate or like an almost siloed part of your life. It's about bringing it into your life, right? So they're uh, calling the network Bonga, which is awesome because it means chat in Swahili. What do we think about this? I think it's awesome. So I checked in with our um, African specialist in the team. There's a gentleman called Benedict who works with Ross and I on the research team. And I was like, explain this to me. I'm confused. And he said he said a couple of things which were interesting. He said, first of all, that this was first announced in um, August 2017. So it's taken them quite a while to get there. Exactly as Ross says, they're doing a lot of different things. They want to be the Tencent, as you say, of Africa or of Kenya at least. But um, really interestingly, Benedict pointed out that why wouldn't they integrate their payments capabilities into something like WhatsApp, which already has all those social messaging capabilities. It would be a much more sensible play. Rather than trying to keep it as a closed platform, why not utilise it? Because then Facebook owns all that interaction data, I want to give you the quote. Just because you have a large network doesn't mean you have to try and shoehorn it into being a social network, um, which I quite like the idea of. You don't have to do everything. So the one play is the 10 cent play. You do everything yourself. The other play is what kind of James touched on earlier, which is the bring other people in who are doing things better than us. Yeah, and of course, 
Facebook are already looking at integrating payments in chat interfaces, whether it's WhatsApp, whether yeah. it's Facebook Messenger. And there is something nice about that because it's putting um, the solution at the point of need. So it's not about I have to log into my mobile banking app and I have to get your banking details and I have to set you up as a new payee, which I may or may not be able to do in the app depending on the provider. And that's kind of painful. So putting it at the chat interface and actually, you know, making it proactive, like Catherine, if I message you and I'm like, oh, I owe you £10 for lunch, a little thing just pops up and says, oh, do you want to pay her £10, right? Like, you know, and I just action it in one click. Like, it's about embedding, it's about embedding that in people's yeah. lives and it's about putting it at the point of need. And it, and it's about, well, the other thing there is as well, if the point of need is to pay somebody, do I really want to send them a text message at the same time? I think there's kind of that conflicting attitude, right? Like, what, if I'm if I'm using M-Pesa to pay people and, it's, and it is to pay businesses and people, right? It's everything in Kenya. Do you actually want to be sending, like, do you want to say, do you want to, either like share you know guess what i just spent 10 pound at pret embarrassingly i have done that in my life or do you just want to like pay the damn money i don't know it's, it's an interesting one yeah i was just going to say it's had such a huge impact in pays and i know ross you've written about this as well but the impact of you've taken my plug i, I love have. it that's amazing yes. well done uh thanks thanks uh i'll get the money later yeah, uh yeah. <laughs> drinks on me mate yeah so i mean i know as a platform you know they've uh, essentially raised two percent of Ken- kenyan households out of extreme poverty, which is 190-odd thousand people, which is incredible. And I think it's also tapping into that whole idea of, you know, mobile subscription over the infrastructure that you have around payments, especially in emerging markets. So, you know, 76% of people uh, across that region, across sub-Saharan Africa, have got that mobile subscription. For me, what's really interesting here, and the movement to the social network is prior to this, you used to have to essentially transport your money in a bag, perhaps on a bus, across Kenya from one destination to the other, hugely inefficient, massive costs. The the difference here is ultimately, if you think about it, money is a means for also social interaction. It's not just about paying. And so for me, what's really interesting here is by bringing that social element to it, what they're trying to do is not have that diversification or that breakdown in family. So right now, it's really easy to transfer money through M-Pesa if you're a family member from one side of Kenya to the other. What this does is reintroduce that social aspect back, which I quite like because actually that sits at the heart of some transactions. It's not just about what you pay your money for, but it's how you pay it, how you communicate and why you do it, because that's what people care about. Maybe this is what you're going to say. Catherine, but there's a cultural element here because I just don't think that that's necessarily true in a lot of cases in in the UK. I, you know, I will speak to my mum on the phone and then I'll transfer her money or I'll speak to my sister. But like, you know, money transfer is what I mean. And so I think, I think there's a cultural element there as well, which maybe I don't understand. I, no, I, I, no, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. And I think the only point I was trying to make was if rather than, you know, talking to your mum on the phone, you were messaging her on Facebook Messenger and you could pay her within a click without, or, you know, if it's someone that you haven't paid before, let's take your mum out and it's someone you went for lunch with and you agreed to split it. And it just said, you know, all right, you can pay now one click but then you know i think the, the fintechs have done a lot in this space as well so obviously we've seen like starling with their settle up feature and rev.me and monster it speaks to a sort of core user need which is the need to get paid back and it's not a huge step at all into the social space because yeah like like samir was saying finance and money is really a social exchange of social interactions um so i think it's really brilliant combining the two and quite exciting to see so 
I, I just just a point about that social point actually I've just had a thought that maybe I am wrong in revisiting it the introduction of self checkouts at supermarkets has apparently done vulnerable people a huge disservice because certainly a lot of elderly people would look forward to speaking to yes. the lady or gentleman at, at a big supermarket when they were paying hello how are you have you had a good day and now they don't get that anymore so actually Maybe there is more to it. And it's a great example. And it's an example, but there's a a wider thing here, which is digital has done so much for financial inclusion. We have to be so careful that we don't cause financial inclusion by going completely digital because then you exclude those types of people who aren't necessarily digital. And that's that's quite an important... Did you write a blog on this, Ross? Would you like to give your, your blog a little plug? I can't believe my plug's got too, like... Uh, uh. All right, straight up. So I did write a blog on financial inclusion. It is a pet. Darnham wrote, thank I'm so sorry. Our awesome content writer, Darnham, wrote an excellent blog on financial inclusion. My picture's on it for some reason. I'm not sure why, but check it out on 11FS. She has a Harry Kay in a fintech. Exactly. I'm taking the credit. That's amazing. What a reference. James is an Arsenal fan as well, which is terrific. Okay, our and finally story, what I like to call our eye roll story, and it's always nice to finish on a sort of funny note. Banker bros beware. So this is a an Instagram account. Instagram of three pictures. Right, but it's still, I mean, the core message resonates. You only need three pictures. It marks the, what they're calling the sort of midtown uniform, but it's what bankers have, I guess, gravitated towards post suits, etc. Maybe in this sort of post fintech apocalypse Catherine, I feel like you've got so much to say on this. Go I'm ahead. quite excited about this. I think like it's brilliant and I actually I'm jealous I want the London version I think I'm yeah I'm gonna start taking snaps if I see them there's way more than three pictures oh my gosh it's all the gilets I'm scrolling still gilets still gilets so it looks to me to be black shoes charcoal or gray trousers a light colored shirt and a gilet Sunnies, oh, sunnies as oh, well. Goodness, oh goodness, they're shorts. Goodness Standard me. weekend wear. I think we might need to we might need to wrap this up. I, well, I think it's terrific because as well. ex banker, eleven FS's own Simon Taylor. Take note, mate. There should be a movement around this. I think that would be absolutely great. I think, I we, think just we just need to start it for different industries as well, so yes. we can have like you know Shoreditch samurais for all the, the you know the bob haircuts and oh my gosh, you know, midtown yeah. uniform gangs. This is terrific. Oh goodness, I don't. Sarah, will you join my gang? I can't grow a beard, Ross. It's problematic. <laughs> I'll go and buy some stick-on ones. <laughs> we need to get like 11FS. So obviously swag is a key thing at 11FS, this idea. Oh, did of... I hear that there's an 11FS gilet? So there is an 11FS gilet, but what I'm thinking is we need 11FS chinos and 11FS shirts. And let's just take this midtown uniform to the next level so, of swag. So Laura, our, our producer, and I are shaking our heads at each other. This is, this is a I've great never, idea. I've honestly never seen so many. I'm just caught in like eye roll central this this is why i call it the eye roll story this is terrific all right i'm gonna close us out let's leave it there i think that is a worthy last word and that wraps up this week's new show guys thank you so much for coming in it has been so much fun where can people find out more about you james uh, probably my twitter feed is best um, and also very grateful if anyone buys the newspaper as well terrific catherine um, LinkedIn is I'm always open for a chat or a new connection and yeah Twitter handle is at I'm Catherine Harris if you want to reach out and follow awesome Samir yeah likewise uh, Twitter so at Samir G1987 giving away my age and also LinkedIn and Sarah 
I'm on Twitter at Sarah Kashansky. Terrific. And as for me, please do send me an email, rossger at 11fs.com or find me on Twitter at rossgallagher07. As always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you would like to send us an email. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please do leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.